Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like history, the visual arts, communications, and comparative religion. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dordan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Amanda Regan and Dr. Eric Gonzaba, co-creators of the NEH-funded digital history project, Mapping the Gay Guides. Dr. Regan teaches history at Clemson University, and Dr. Gonzaba teaches American Studies at California State University in Fullerton. Thank you so much for talking with us. One of the things that struck me about your project is that sort of a joke, like whenever you look at a mapping project, you always look at your own home first. Of course, looked at places in New Mexico, but I also looked at places in Wyoming because I'm from Wyoming. And I was thinking about stories that I knew of gay couples in rural areas who would travel all the way across the state to go to a place in a big city where nobody would recognize them. And so those stories were popping out at me. What did it look like in Santa Fe in the 70s? Or what are some of the things that I could see in Albuquerque in the 80s that were still the same way when I moved to Albuquerque? But I wanted to hear from you all about what were some of the stories that came out of this project that really struck you or moved you? Sure. Alan, there's nothing wrong about checking out your home place. It's the first person you got into a project. It's like ancestry. It's like historians are the only person to use ancestry to look up people that aren't our relatives, right? But it's okay to look up yourself. If history is supposed to be anything, it's supposed to be a reflection of us as a society, but also as people, right? And it's, so it's good that we want to figure out more about ourselves and our communities and our identities, right? It's also something great, too, because I assigned this project to my students in one of my big survey classes, and I make them kind of do a mini vignette, this kind of mini write-up on one spot, do an investigation, what does this spot mean to this community? And almost every single one of my 100 students every semester always chooses a spot from the town that they're from. And they always think, is that okay? I'm like, 100%, that's okay. You're curious about this local community. But at least from my perspective, Dr. Reagan and I, we were trained under a digital historian at George Mason, who's now at Michigan State, Dr. Sharon Leon. And a lesson that she taught me very early on about digital humanities projects was we don't just make digital humanities projects to build pretty websites and then, you know, pat ourselves on the back for being awesome people. We build digital projects to learn something about the topics that we're doing about, right? And it should have a specific audience. The audience of our project isn't just the general public. It has to have a very specific kind of audience. Your audience can be different based on who uses it. But for me, I'm a history nerd, right? So I want to go on walking tours of New Orleans and walking tours of Salt Lake City whenever I go there. And I got tired when I there was no queer history in any of these walking tours I was going on or bus tours or whatever. I would ask tour guides, why don't you have any of this included? And they would always say, we don't know anything about it. How are we supposed to know where to stop and right now? And that inspired me. Like my audience, at least from my perspective, and Dr. Reagan has a very different perspective perhaps, but from my perspective, it's like I want people to stop being able to say there was no queer history in my community, right? And this Digital Humanities Project refutes the idea that queer history was only in Castro District of San Francisco or Greenwich Village in New York. It was everywhere. It was even in my small town in rural Indiana. There was queer history there. And so I think this kind of Digital Humanities Project focused on these gay travel guides really refutes the myth that gay history is in isolation and only an urban phenomenon. Amanda, Eric said you might have a somewhat different or extended perspective on that. Yeah. So I come at this project as the digital expert, not the content expert. So everything surprises me. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun to get to learn about all of this diverse history. 
And one of the things that struck me that I had not realized until I really started diving into the data was just the sheer number of religious institutions. You know, we always sort of think of religious institutions as not very hospitable places to the LGBTQ community, but there was actually a huge number of metropolitan community churches and Catholic organizations, especially in Chicago in the 80s, that catered to LGBTQ people. And so I've found finding these little tidbits in the data very interesting. Like an example might be where you'd be welcome to go to services or take communion or whatever, as the case may be. You know, there was one called uh, Dignity, and I'm sure Eric could speak to this in greater detail, but there was one called Dignity out of Chicago, which I think was an organization specifically for Catholics who wanted to continue to be Catholic, but were sort of shunned by the church. Right. And in Dignity, in fact, it was a national organization. There was Dignity chapters all over the country. And this tells us something. The fact that it's not just isolated in one city, the fact that it's all over the place, tells us that there is a gay Catholic community that yearns to go to Mass and to have that kind of Catholic faith continue even after they came out of the closet. And yet they were shunned in many churches. And yet the fact that there is a Catholic organization in many cities across the country tells us that there are accepting Catholic congregations. They may not be able to meet formally at Mass, but they're able to still feel like they're part of a broader community. And there's many kind of many stories that have come out by just doing this data project. And the other thing I'm interested in is, you know, what happens during the turning points in gay history with this data set? Before I did this project, I used to tell people that we spent so much time as gay historians talking about Stonewall. It's like an important event, but it's happened in New York. There was gay history happening in other places. I felt like all the attention was happening about this one event in 1969 in New York City. I was like, we should focus on other things. And what I found out very quickly by doing this project, only because we've only done the first 15 or 20 years of data set so far, was just based on our data, there is a huge increase in LGBT spaces exploding after 1969, which tells me that Stonewall, whether I like it or not, was a turning point. And that refutes even me, who thinks of themselves as relatively versed in gay history. It is something I wouldn't know without doing the digital history project. We don't do these projects to confirm what we already know. We do these projects to learn about new questions that we hopefully are able to ask and maybe one day be able to answer. One of the things that I was looking for playing with the data is stories of persistence of businesses or neighborhoods or whatever that remain consistent over time. My little hometown of Wyoming, uh, there was a bar. I've never thought of it as a gay bar, but it must have been a friendly place, you know, maybe one of the only places in Wyoming you could go to safely. And it's right there in all the years that you have data for. And it was just interesting to me how many stories like that popped up in the vignettes too where a community grows around a place or champions of the place emerge. A hundred percent, right? And one of the things that Damron leaves us to help us understand, you might think like, how is there gay bars in all these communities, right? Well, what makes a gay space, right? Is it just a whole bunch of gay people go there? Does the owner of this space have to say, this is a gay space, right? That question is kind of in flux. And I think Damron knew that when he was creating these guides. And the way he kind of gathered these lists of spaces was that he traveled to a lot of spaces and asking, where do y'all hang out? And a lot of people would say, oh, this is the gay bar. But then, you know, he'll go to some places in Utah and it's not really a gay bar, but a lot of gay 
people hang out there with other people that are quote unquote considered deviants, right? And he lists these spaces differently. He often uses the letter M, which he eventually calls mixed spaces, where he says some straight people are going to be there. Here we're questioning, is there a certain areas of the country where you have a lot more M spaces, where it may be harder to have openly gay establishments? And based on our early findings, we're seeing a lot more M, M spaces in places like the U.S. South, in the Midwest, in the Great Plains, which doesn't tell us necessarily that these are places that are much more homophobic, even though perhaps that stereotype has some truth to it. But it tells us that queer people have to negotiate their identities differently in these kinds of spaces. They're not going to be able to find spaces with rainbow flags outside of them, but doesn't mean that the activities inside are going to be less hospitable to them. And their culture is going to be perhaps a little more hidden or just look differently than they would like the gay bars in the Castro District of San Francisco. I mean, it also have been a lot to have navigated as a person. I imagine being like a regional salesperson, you know, out there with your brush suitcase and just trying to find somewhere to go relax at an evening or take in services on Sunday. And what's really fascinating, too, is that our graduate research assistants who build the data said they go and they have to type in the data. And what we realized is that some of these pages, these are actual historical guides that people use. They're fascinating because we can actually tell that people weren't just looking up random cities. They were making notes. They were saying, went to this bar, was really happy. I met a guy there, right? Or they'll cross it out. And it's so great to have students look at a guide that was actually used and how it wasn't just this index where they kept in their car and they sometimes looked at it. They were constantly using it. They were constantly traveling it. I interview lots of gay men for my book project and for this project, and almost every single person uses the same word, a lifeline, which makes it a perfect primary source for this project that we're doing. People write to us and they'll send us emails and say, you know, oh my gosh, I remember going to Joe's bar in the 80s. They had this great jukebox and, you know, I met my partner there. And they'll tell us these vibrant stories of actually remembering these places. And it's been a lot of fun to watch people just relive those experiences. I'm curious, are you planning on adding in supplementary information, marginalia, oral histories? There's multiple questions in there. Are we looking to make the guides available? And the answer is yes. We've been lucky to partner with a set of geographers at the University of Washington in Seattle. And they've, alongside of us, scanned all of these documents from 1981 to 2005 and beyond. There were actually women's guides in the 1990s as well, guides that were specifically aimed at women. And all of those will soon be provided to the One Archives at the University of Southern California, and those will be made available for free, open source, on their website. The second thing is, do we have plans to allow people to submit coasters and napkins and pictures from these locations? And that's not in our current project, but I hope that one day we can begin to accept that stuff because there's sort of an archive out there just waiting to be built, composed of this material. And I can imagine creating a platform to allow people to do that. I mean, I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned, that there were materials or there were resources that were developed for women, but not until the 90s. Was there anything before then, maybe for people of color or for women or for trans people or for other communities besides mostly men? The Damron Guides are one of a few different guidebooks that existed at the time. Damron doesn't start publishing a women's edition until I think it's 1992. And I think that's sort of an outgrowth of second wave feminism and a greater push towards recognizing the fact that women wanted different things out of these guides. 
It's also an outgrowth of the fact that the Dameron Corporation is at that time taken over by a woman named Gina Gatta, who takes over the company and decides to publish uh, women's guides. But Eric can talk more about the other types of guides that existed. Amanda's right. Gina Gatta, who still owns the Dameron Company, she keeps the name because the Dameron name is super important. And that name had a lot of meaning to a huge community of queer people who understood ties to gay travel and gay travel guides. But she was tired of that. The Dameron guy was just kind of a boys club, right? There were definitely lesbian spaces within the guides before 1992, but she felt like lesbian women had different needs. I shouldn't say just lesbian women, bisexual women, all types of women had different needs and had different kinds of spaces that weren't being well represented in the guides. And so she started publishing a separate women's guide after, I believe you're right, Amanda, 1992. The problem is, and it's not really a problem, but she always talked about how the women's guide always lost money, the most successful of the travel guides, which eventually be called the male guide after the 1992. It was just called the Damron guide before there was a women's guide. And there's a lot of reasons for that. There is kind of a wage imbalance, like Mandy was talking about, the birth of second wave feminism. Gay men had more financial resources than a lot of lesbian women had. And they're also, their tendency for kind of spaces were different too, right? Eventually, gay men coalesced around having gay spaces, while women found much more refuge in kind of second wave feminist spaces, a feminist activity versus LGBTQ activism, which we'll come to know here. That doesn't say women were not involved at all, but the kind of spaces and, and the kind of spaces that Damron was much more interested in were much more tailored to gay men in the way that they weren't tailored to women. And to your second question about what about other communities like African-Americans or Latinos or whatnot, Damron does eventually start including that information within the guides. He begins including black spaces in the early guides, beginning in the early 70s. But again, it's a financial risk. Let's say you were an African-American businessman who was wanting to create a black-only spaces guide. It was a financial risk, right? You had to find a publisher who was willing to do that, and they were going to have to be expensive because you're only going to have to publish maybe 500 to 600 of them. So you don't see a lot of these kind of guides specifically tailored to those minority communities like you do a broader Damron guide. And one of the things we're interested in is whether the Damron guide reflects, I hate to use the word racist tendencies in its early years, but it focuses mostly on white male gay spaces versus the expense of non-white gay male spaces. But some of that maybe is market also, right? A hundred percent. That's a great question. He wanted to provide a necessary service to his community, but he also wanted to make a living and sell some publications. Exactly. We were so obsessed with activists today, right? But if we forget that so much of the bedrock of mainstream LGBT history is a people who are entrepreneurs. Their main goal is survival. And so they're going to try to build spaces or sell travel guides that are going to survive. And the way to do that is you have to market to a community and San Francisco's gay community at the time, the people he was mostly marketing to were white men like himself. What we're interested in though, is in what ways does Damron's guide help define what it means to be gay in the 1970s? To give you an example here, Damron does list the black bars. That's the reason why I started this project. I wanted to find bars that had the label B next to them. It told me that African-Americans were going there. Maybe they may have owned the bar or whatnot. But what's so interesting, one of the other classifications, and this is one of Amanda's discoveries in our project, was one of the letters that he includes is RT, which he called raunchy spaces. He includes other classifications here, like downtown types go there, basically places that are considered like dingy at the time, right? And there are only about 2% of all spots in the guide that are considered African-American spaces. And that's one, only about 2% of all our listings. Another unrelated statistic is only about 2% of all the spaces in our guide are listed as raunchy or RT. But here's the interesting thing of black spaces, of that 2% of those spaces that are black, almost half of them are considered raunchy in Damron's guide, which we don't know why that's the case, but we're wondering if these guides inadvertently or not 
spread the message that African-American gay spaces were considered much more lower class, dingy spaces, and you should stay away from them. We can't prove that 100%, but this project allowed us to see that data together that you wouldn't be able to see without something like Mapping a Gay Guy. Eric, Amanda, we can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time today and talking about your project and your historical endeavors. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. And if you would like more information about Eric and Amanda's project, you can visit mappingthegayguides.org or follow at Gay Guides on Twitter. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James White. So I spend my had production assistance from Tristan McClough. Up and down the same old city streets. I never dreamed that I would become a bus driver.